Morning, everyone. How are you? Good? That's good. As uh, Marianne mentioned, my name is Justin, and uh, I'm Waters Church Pastors based at the Norwood campus. I'm here with my wonderful wife, Kerry, who's sitting at the back with our little guy, and uh, our daughter is in the kids' church, which she loves. It's good to be part of Waters Church. It is. Good. So I grew up a Christian. I was a Christian from a young age, seriously loved God, and I seriously loved telling people about Jesus. Even at school, I was a little evangelist and uh, would tell people about Jesus, and I loved it if somebody actually said, yes, I hear what you're saying, and I want it. I want part of that. I loved winning souls for God, and uh, even at a young age. So as I grew up and as I grew more and more into that sort of thing, I was my wife, Carrie, and I, we would spend some time in bookstores and look at the Christian section and see which books are doing the rounds and what's going on. And one particular year, a couple of years ago, I came across a book by Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a preacher from the 1800s. He was known as the Prince of Preachers. So this, is a, this book was called The Soul Winner, and it's a collection of sermons that he preached that have been transcribed and put into a book. So I looked at it and I thought, oh, that's my kind of book for sure. Firstly, I like Sir Spurgeon. Secondly, I like Winning Souls. So then I was standing in there one, one evening at the bookstore browsing through it, and I had a look at the title, the contents, and uh, I was reading through the contents thinking, should I get it or is this just going to be another book in my collection or am I going to read it? So I was looking through it and I came down to chapter number seven, and it said, How to Raise the Dead. I closed the book. And bought it straight away. <laughs> because as much as I loved seeing people give their lives to Jesus, I love the thought of somebody being raised from the dead. That was thrilling. I thought, I can't wait to read this. Put it into practice. So I bought the book. And uh, I think that the next week we were on vacation, and I remember opening it up on the beach and thinking, right, let me get stuck into this now. And, uh, and reading it, and I loved it. And that's really what I want to share with us this morning. Is it comes out of this chapter, it comes out of the Bible, and I want it to work into our hearts, to change us, to stir us, to challenge us, to convict us as we, as we study the Bible this morning. So what he does, Spurgeon, in this chapter is he works through a story that comes out of the Old Testament. It comes out of the book of two kings, and it's the story of a powerful, fearsome man of God a prophet named Elisha. Elisha was an was a incredible man of God who walked everywhere he went with his staff, and he had a servant, and he was itinerant. So he had a bit of a circuit that he would travel. He would go from place to place, town to town, and he would minister. He would engage with people. He would talk with the politicians and the rulers of the day. And in one particular town, there was a, a wealthy woman with her husband who had a house that they could see what was going on in the town. So every time Elisha was coming, she would run out and say, Elisha, come and have dinner with us tonight. And so he would stop there in there and have a good meal with them. And this became part of his routine as he traveled. And the, husband, the wife and the husband really enjoyed his company, it seems. So after some time, the wife said to the husband, why don't we build the prophet a room on our roof so that when he comes, he can come and stay the night. He can recover from his traveling. He can rest a little bit. We can be a blessing to him just as he is a blessing to us in our area. So the husband said, yes, let's do it. So they built a little humble room, the prophet's room, on their roof. In that room was a bed, a desk, a stool to sit on, and a lamp. 
Just very basic, but a wonderful place that Elisha could come and rest. So they did that. They went, they did the, he did the tour. He kept, he kept doing it every time he went past this town, Shunem. He would uh, go upstairs and he would have a rest. And one afternoon or evening, I can imagine him lying on his bed in, in the prophet's room. And uh, Gehazi is probably sitting at the desk, maybe making a couple of notes. Gehazi was his servant. And he says to Gehazi, as he's thinking about the goodness of this family, of this couple that let him uh, stay in this room. And he says, I wonder what we can do for this family. He says to Gehazi, go downstairs and talk to the woman and find out if there's anything we can do for her. He had a lot of connections with the rulers and he said, maybe we can speak to some of the rulers on her behalf, some of the leaders in the community on her behalf, see if there's something we can do. So Gehazi hops off his stool, runs downstairs, and he says to the lady, is there anything we can do for you? Ask her the questions. And she says, I'm very satisfied in life. I'm living among my own people, and that is enough for me. Happy. So Gehazi goes back up and uh, reports back to Elisha. Elisha ponders there some more, almost thinking aloud. And he says to Gehazi, surely there's something that can be done for this woman. So Gehazi says, well, her husband is very old, and they have not had a son. So Elisha claps his hands in excitement, calls her, and she comes upstairs and she waits in the door and he says, this time next year, you will have a son. And her face drops. And she says, don't say that to me, sir. Don't say it. Don't lead me on. I've anticipated, I've been expectant of children. I imagine is what she's thinking. She says, I've been anticipating children. I've wanted a son and it's too late now. It's not going to happen. Don't let me build up hope again, only to be disappointed. And he says, wait and see. And sure enough, she falls pregnant and a year's time goes by. He comes back and there she is nursing the little boy, holding the little boy in her arms. Wonderful story. So a couple of years go by, the boy grows up, and one year he goes out to meet his father in the field, and he's playing around while his dad is working with the servants, and all of a sudden he grabs his head and he says, Dad, my head, my head. And his dad, like any good dad, says, go to your mom. <laughs> She'll sort you out. So a servant takes the boy to the mom, and the mom can see that there's actually something quite serious. So she sits the boy down on her lap and holds him and cradles him until noontime, seeing that he's growing weaker and weaker, and at noon the boy dies. This child of promise dies. So she does a very interesting thing after that. As soon as the boy dies, she picks him up, carries him upstairs to the prophet's room, and lays the boy out on the prophet's bed. Then she goes downstairs. She walks out to her husband in the field and says, Can you send for a servant and for one of the donkeys? I must go and see the man of God today. And he says, Why? Why do you need to go? What's wrong? And she says, No, all is well. I'm going to go and come back very quickly. So she doesn't even tell him. She goes, he says, sure, he sends the donkey, and she tells the servant who's leading the donkey, she says, don't take your time, don't worry about my comfort, let's get there as quick as we can. Off they go. Now, Elisha, from a long way off, once she's made some distance, sees that the woman is coming and perceives that something is wrong, something's not right, so he sends Gehazi, go and, there's the woman coming, something's wrong, go and find out what's wrong. So Gehazi runs off, and uh, the woman, he says, what's wrong? Elisha can see something's wrong. She says, all is well, all is well. So Gehazi comes running back, and uh, eventually the woman makes her way all the way to Elisha, and as she does, she gets off the donkey and falls at his feet, weeping. And Gehazi tries to push her away, and he says, stop it, man. Can't you see that something is troubling this woman? So he says, what's wrong? And then she looks up at him, and she says, did I ask you for a son? 
Did I ask you? Now he is dead. So Elisha stirs into action and he says to Gehazi, take my staff. Every good prophet has a staff, a rod that he walks with. And he says, take my staff, run to the woman's house and lay it on the boy's face. So Gehazi does that. He takes the staff, runs all the way to, to the, the woman's house, which is some distance, puts the staff in her face while Elisha and the woman start making her way back. After some time, Gehazi comes running back with the staff and he says, the child has not awakened. He hasn't woken up. So they carry on walking, Elisha and the woman walking resolutely back to this room that now holds death. They go back. Now let's read. Let's read. Two kings. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch or on his bed. He went in, shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed stretched himself on the boy and lay with mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. He stretched himself out upon him, and the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room, and then got on the bed and stretched out upon the boy once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gazi and he said, call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, take your son. She came in fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Incredible story. And it's a story that the Holy Spirit considered important to put into the Bible for our benefit today. He considered it important for our correcting, our teaching, our rebuking, and our training. Now, in the Bible, we might find various different types of scriptures, various different portions. And this is what one more would call a narrative. It's a story. It's recounting something that happened. In the Bible, you'll find narrative parts of the Bible or parts of scripture and prescriptive. Prescriptive meaning do's and don'ts, action. So in other words, in the New Testament, Paul writes to families and he says, husbands, this is what you are to do as a husband. This is how you look after the family. Wives, this is how you respond to your husband. Children, this is how you obey your parents. Parents, this is how you look after your children. Prescriptive, telling them what to do. And those are things that we can bring straight into the church and say, husbands do this, wives do that, children do this, do that. Then we've got narratives which are stories. Out of these narratives, we are to find the heart. <laughs> we define the heart. We define the larger story. We're to find what God has put into the story and take out of it what we can. We're to let it stir us, let it inspire us, let it move us into action. So in a story is very difficult to take do's and don'ts out of because it'll always exclude something, but it's very good for taking, this, taking a message, taking fire, taking inspiration out of those stories and bring it in, into our life. And that's what I want to do this morning with this story coming out of the book of 2 Kings, the story of how to raise the dead. It's a good one. It's a good one. So when it comes to raising the dead, most of us who are here this morning are not in the business of working with dead people daily. There might be a few of you here this morning who uh, work for a funeral home or for a, you're a mortician, or you work in the morgue or the mortuary. And so part of your daily business is coming up quite close with dead people. For you, that's great if you like that kind of thing, and if you're able to make a good income off it, good. For the rest of us, when we come across dead people, it usually shocks us. 
We're not familiar with it. It's harsh. The contrast between death and life alarms us. We look at it and we think, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to quite respond to this. Do I touch it? What is it going to feel like? What happened? How did the person die? I don't know if I, can I catch something from this? We don't, we don't know always how to respond to, to death when we see it so closely. What about spiritual death? Spiritual death. We are surrounded daily by those who are spiritually dead. D-E-A-D, dead. No sign of life. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 1, and he says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but Christ has made you alive. And it's interesting, when Gehazi comes back after putting the staff, the rod on the boy's face, he comes back and he says, The child has not awakened. Almost as if to say, I'm not sure if he's really dead. He could just be in a coma or a deep sleep. He didn't face the death head on. And it could be for many of us as Christians, and I think this happens a lot, is that we are surrounded by people who are spiritually dead, but we don't make too much of it. We would rather say, it's not as bad as death, it's just sleep. They're just sleeping. They are not dead. We're not shocked. We're not horrified at death. And like the mortician is familiar with death and it doesn't impact in any way, we as people are familiar with those who are spiritually dead around us. It does not move us. It does not alarm us. It doesn't shock us. And we need to wake up and open our eyes again to the fact that we are surrounded by people who spiritually are dead. Dead. Thoroughly dead. No sign of life. This world is a dungeon of death. People are held captive by their sins. And we who have been made alive walk through them and walk past them, stepping over them. Excuse me while I step over this dead body. Being totally unaware of it. Unaware. And many times, one of the reasons we do that is because we don't really believe or we have lost faith or lost heart that God can raise the dead. Did Elijah have any special power to raise the dead? No, he didn't. He was a man like you and I, but he had faith. He was connected under the calling of the Almighty God. And the, even the wife, the reason that she set out so resolutely was because I think in her, there was a determination that this was not the end. There must be life. She could have, as the child breathed his last, fallen on the floor because this is the end. She could have mourned, she could have wept, but instead, very deliberately, very concisely, she moves into action with faith. Elijah himself, with faith, straight away has a go at something. Take the staff, run and do it. Maybe it'll bring him to life. Doesn't work, he tries something else. He walks there with the, with the woman. There was faith inside of that sim, that him that said, let us raise the dead. Now around us, all the time, there are dead people. And so many times we just forget about it. I want you to have a look around this, uh, this room this morning. Have a look around. Have a look at all the empty seats. Have a look at the empty seats. If you can stretch your neck, have a look in that dark section at the back with all those seats reserved in faith for the dead who are still to be raised and fill that place. What is the rest of Massachusetts doing this morning? What are they doing? Are they dead? 
Do we believe that they can be raised to life? Most certainly we do. We must. Is there one thing in, the, in, the, in a person's life that can block them, that can prevent God from saving them? Is there one sin? Is there one orientation? Is there one disability? Have people gone too far from God that He can't save them? I tell you, no. No. Everyone can be saved. Everyone. And we need to have that fire stoked within us again that we believe that God is going to bring more people, not necessarily into this building, but into His kingdom. We want them in this building. We want these seats filled. We want that back section utilized. We didn't make it for nothing. We don't want it to be an overflow. We want living souls sitting in those seats at the back there. We want that. Life. People being raised to life by the power of God. That's what we're looking for. So they move with this faith, with this anticipation. Elisha, as he walks up the stairs to his upper room, he doesn't even give the two people a chance to come in. He closes the door and leaves them outside. Two types of people out there. The woman, the Shunammite, who was desperate, who was going to do everything, who was going to interfere, and Gehazi, who seemed a bit cynical, a bit skeptical. He was like, oh, I don't know if this is going to happen. He shuts them out, shuts out those distractions, and he gets on his knees before God in prayer. This is where it happens. This is where it all starts, is in prayer. Friends, sometimes you and I need to stop talking, stop thinking, stop discussing, and shut the door and pray. That's what we got to do. We've got to get in there and pray. Listen to this. Listen to what he says here about prayer. It's incredible. He says, at any rate, there must be prayer. Much prayer, constant prayer, zealous prayer, the kind of prayer that will not take a denial. Like Luther's prayer, which he called the bombarding of heaven. Like planting cannons at heaven's gates to blow them open. <laughs> Blowing the gates of heaven open. That kind of prayer. Do you know what I'm talking about? In this way, fervent men prevail in prayer. They will not leave the mercy seat until they can cry with Luther. Vici, I have conquered. I have gained the blessing for which I strove. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. This violence, this aggression, this warfare starts when we shut the door. We get on our knees before God, and we say, let's do it, God. Let's do it. Let's raise the dead. That's where Elisha starts. I love that. Prayer. You know, to just take action without prayer is presumption. To do something without praying, and there are so many things that we can do as a church and as individuals that we think will raise the dead, that, will, that we think will bring the lost in. And to do them without soaking them in prayer is pure presumption. But at the same time, Elisha doesn't just pray and then leave it there, uh, call out to the woman, while well, I prayed, nothing happened. I'm really sorry. He doesn't do that. He prays and then he moves into action. Prayer without action is hypocrisy. We need both. Prayer and action. The two of them go together. So he prays. He prays. And then he gets into action. What does he do? Something most awkward and uncomfortable. He sees the small boy on his bed and he stretches out upon him. He climbs onto the bed, onto this cold, freezing cold body, which has probably already been set in with rigor mortis. The life has left it. And he climbs on top of that body, eyes to eyes, Mouth to mouth, hands to hand. Why did he do that? It shows us an incredible picture. 
It shows us that it's very difficult to raise the dead from afar. It shows us that for us to be close to people, close enough to raise the dead, we've got to get into their space. That's where compassion develops. Compassion. You know, eyes to eyes, it's though he came close to him as if to say, let me see what you see. Let me put on the filter of your eyes to see how you look at the world. Let me see why it is that you don't think Jesus is for you. Let me see why it is that you are disappointed with the church. Let me see why it is that the world is nothing but failure for you. Or let me see why it is that the world holds every hope for you. Let me understand what it is that you see. Let me hear what it is that you're saying. Let me speak in a way that you will understand me. Let me see what's in your hands. What have you put your hands to? You know, for us as the church, for us as Christians, we know that we have a life beyond this world. And so where things are put in our hand and they're taken out of our hand, we're okay with it. Our hands are open. But for people in the world, what they have in their hands is literally all they have. And so many times we want to slap those things out their hands and say, let go of that stuff. It means nothing. But for them, it's their whole world. We need to look carefully and understand why it is that they grip onto these things with all their heart and say, let me help you so that they will willingly open up their hands to take hold of Jesus Christ, letting go of the things that they hold on to. So he gets close to them, close to him, and as he does that, compassion grows. He comes in extremely close proximity to death, and he has compassion. Compassion. We cannot have compassion from afar. It's so easy to judge from afar. We can judge a people group, an orientation, a political party. We can judge them from afar because we can so easily see their faults. But when we get into their space, into their area, quickly we begin to see what occupies their eyes, what they talk about, what's, what they're holding and what's holding them prisoner. And compassion grows for them. In fact, we come so close to death, we almost put ourselves into that prison with them. Listen to what he says here about this compassion. Where is it now? He says, if you would raise that dying child, you must feel the chill and horror of that child's death yourself. A dying man is needed to raise dying men. Isn't that amazing? I cannot believe that you will ever pluck a branch from the burning fire without putting your hand near enough to feel the heat of that fire. You must have more or less a distinct sense of the dreadful wrath of God and of the terrors of the judgment to come, or you will lack energy in your work and so lack one of the essentials of success. I do not think the preacher ever speaks well upon such topics until he feels them pressing upon him as a personal burden from the Lord. So we, we see Elisha stretches himself and becomes so closely acquainted with death in this instance. And in that we see a picture of Jesus Christ coming into the world of death, entering into this room of death that we call the world and stretching out, not upon each and every one of us, but stretching out upon the cross taking hold of death himself, experiencing death himself and rising from it so that we could rise with him. We see a picture of Jesus there. Isn't that so incredible? Eyes to eyes, mouth to mouth, hands to hand. Jesus Christ stretching out his hands on the cross, experiencing death for us. Wonderful Jesus. So Elisha, as he does this, the body starts to warm up, which is natural. And I imagine that he starts to get a bit cold from the touch of that body, but the body warms up. And as it warms up, he thinks, I wonder if there is life. 
I wonder if there is life. So he gets off the body and he paces around the room looking for a sign of life and he's watching. He's watching. He's watching to see whether that body's going to grow cold or whether it's going to stay warm. And friends, what I want to tell you is that in every church service across the world, even here this morning, there are warm, dead bodies. People coming into church every Sunday to sit at the fire of the warmth of the life of God, to warm up, only to leave and a couple of days later to be stone cold again. And you feel the life when you're here, but you have not taken hold of the life. We are not satisfied with warmth. We need life. There is a difference. There is a difference. We cannot be satisfied with just being warm. Being warm comes from the outside. Life comes from within, where Jesus awakens us. Jesus gives us a new heart from within. So he watches, and he's waiting, and he's waiting to see, is, he gonna, is something happening here? And it doesn't happen. So he goes back again. You know, I think of some friends of mine. I've got two friends that I've been praying for for a long time. I've been praying for them for quite some time, and there are seasons where I pray for them more earnestly than others. And I know that they are warm, warmer than they used to be. The one went through this, this really good discipleship course, 12 weeks, and I thought, this will surely bring this man to salvation. And he went through it and he enjoyed it, but he has not woken up yet. His eyes are not opened yet. He has not been raised to life yet. The other one I can see, he says, I'm praying every day, but I know that he hasn't given his life over to God yet. He's warm, but it's not life yet. And so I am not satisfied. I carry on bringing them to prayer. It's amazing that the woman chose to put the boy in, the, in the Elisha's bed because he couldn't go and have a rest. He couldn't rest. Because the boy was in his bed. And so many times we need to find that the people that God has laid on our heart, He has actually put on the bed of our heart so that we cannot rest. So that when we try and rest, we can't because there is someone in my bed and I need to be praying for that person. I cannot get comfortable until they are off my bed and alive. And we've got to feel that. Feel that. So these two individuals, they're still on my bed, and sometimes I notice them there, and I think, why are you still here? I must pray. And so I pray for them, and I pray, and I will continue to pray. And I hope that you're finding the same thing, that God is putting names in your heart, that He's putting people on the bed of your heart that you cannot rest until they are raised to life. I hope so. I've got another friend who was a bad guy at school. I mean, he was bad. And I saw him a couple of years after school at the gym, and, and suddenly he made his way into the bed of my heart. And I prayed for him. I prayed for him for quite some time. And thought about him, and, and I couldn't rest. And then I forgot about him after that. And then just this last week, he got hold of me. And he said, I want to tell you, I have Jesus in my life now. I believe, uppercase letters, B-E-L-I-V-E. He might have spelt it wrong. He wasn't too good at school. But I look at that and I think, that man is not just warm. He is alive. He is risen. I think, great. Great God. I'm excited about that. So Elisha gets back on. He says, this isn't good enough. I'm not ex I, I can't just accept warmth. He gets back on the boy and he waits until the Lord does the miracle. The Lord wakes him up, stirs him, breathes life back into his body from within. And the boy sneezes seven times. And Elisha thinks, that's life. Then the boy opens his eyes. 
Imagine that moment. Imagine that moment. If you've seen a corpse or a dead body and you've seen the eyes, you know that there is no light in them. They're cold, dark, dead. Imagine seeing light coming back into a person's eyes. How beautiful those eyes must have looked. How beautiful. What an incredible moment for Elisha. The boy didn't wake up and make some eloquence saying, my goodness, I've been so close to heaven's gates and you've brought me back by stretching out upon me. How wonderful that is of you, Elisha. Thank you so much. I've got a, a, a much more value for life. He doesn't say a single thing, not a word. And much like this friend of mine who got hold of me recently, I listened to the things he's saying. Most of it's not quite right, but he's sneezing. And I think that's life. I'm okay with that. It's good. And so Elisha looks at this, looks at life in the eyes, and he says, wonderful. He gets up, calls the woman, take your son. Good, good. Don't we want that joy, each and every one of us, of seeing life return to dead eyes? Don't we want that joy? Don't we ourselves want to be so filled with life, so burning with the life of God? You know, if you, if you rub shoulders with a dead person and you feel that cold of death upon your shoulder, that it shakes you. What we want is to be so hot with the power and the life of God that as death touches us, they look up and they say, oh my word, he's alive! That the opposite happens. That we're not just stepping through these bodies of death, making our way to the promised land. Excuse me, I'm on my way. Hope things work out for you. We want to be moved with compassion. Stirred with faith that we reach out our hands, breathe the life of God. What Elisha doesn't do, he doesn't shake the child. You're dead. You're dead. We're going to bury you if you don't wake up now. Wake up. He doesn't bring you that kind of thing. He stretches out. He engages. Compassion. Friends, for us, we need to look at the people that we're hanging out with. It's not that comfortable to hang out with death. That's why for so many Christians, statistics show that we have maybe one, maybe two well, after some years, uh, unsaved friends left in our life. Because we prefer, quite honestly, to hang out with our family. Let me tell you something. You've got all eternity together. We need to be mixing with the unsaved people. We need to be changing some of the most more frequently dialed numbers on our phones. We need to be getting in touch with the dead people, getting them into our homes, getting into their homes, hanging out with them, putting our hands in theirs, and loving and having compassion, shutting the door and praying and saying, God, let, us see, let me see this man come to life. Not by any power of my own, through my own awkward efforts, when empowered by the life of God, resurrection happens. Do you want that? Because it's not just for me. It's not just for those who are extroverted. It's not just for those who have gone to Bible school or who are well-versed in Scripture. It's not just for the mature. It's for the immature. It's for those who don't speak that well. It's for those who are wild and it's for those who are tame. If you, who was here on Wednesday night? A good couple of people. On Wednesday night, I believe that there was a real outpouring of the Spirit of God. The life and the power of God was flowing. That's good. You know why that happens? Not so that we can bring out our deck chairs and our camp chairs and say, great, bring more. Bring more. We love it. It's so that heaven spills out over us so that we can spill out into the streets bringing the life of God. 
bringing the power of God. Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you can be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Not just the front row. For each and every one of us, you guys sitting way at the back here, if you believe in God, if you believe that He has appointed you and called you for this, it is for each of you. Come on. Do you feel powerful? Probably not. Do you believe in God? Do you believe that God raises the dead? Do you say to yourself, I was dead in my sins and transgressions, but God has raised me to life. If He could do it to me, I look back on my life and I look at the miraculous but wonderful, gentle hand of God in my own life, He can do it for anyone. Come on. Do it in us, God. Let that fire burn in us. Let it burn in us. Let the world be shocked at the high levels of life in us. Let us have the privilege of seeing dead eyes, life coming back into them. Let's trust God. Let's trust God to stir this in us, to work it in us, to set this fire blazing within us. Let's encourage one another. Let's spur one another on for this. Not satisfied. We can't just be satisfied with growing in knowledge. Listen to what they say on the end of this book here. He says, if you are eager for real joy, friends, this isn't hard what God has called us to do. Things that are hard are things that we try and do by ourselves. We can't raise the dead by ourselves. We can't. He does it. We just do what we can do, which is easy, if a little uncomfortable. If you are eager for real joy, I am persuaded that no joy of growing wealthy, no joy of increasing knowledge, no joy of influence over your fellow creatures, no joy of any other sort can ever compare with the rapture of saving a soul from death. It's not hard work. It's not the mission field. It's the joy that God has put before us. He has prepared tasks in advance for you and I to do. This is it, raising the dead. Simple. Let's do it. Let's do it. Some of you are feeling excited. Good. Some of you are feeling skeptical. Let that little bit of ember burn within you, friends. Breathe fire on it. Don't let, it, don't let that wick go out. Some of you are feeling nervous and you're thinking, all right, I'll, I'll give it a go. The power of God is in you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you so that you can be my witnesses, so that you can pull from the life and the power of heaven into this earth. Amen. 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 Why don't we stand together?